You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning, I'm Michael May of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office. As always, I'm glad to be with you for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Every Saturday morning, we bring you highlights of our local radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. Today, we begin with a segment from our Catholic Conference Hour program hosted by Bob Gilligan. Bob and his guests talked about the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling that the Trump administration's decision to end the DACA program, safeguarding young undocumented immigrants from deportation, was arbitrary and capricious. Let's take a listen. With us on the phone, we have Ashley Feasley with the USCCB, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, their Office of Migration and Refugee Services. Ashley, are you with us? Yes. Hi, thank good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, good thank, morning. Thank, thank you for taking some time this morning, and uh, welcome to the program. I think you have done this before. Uh, and so, Ashley, I think what we wanted to do is just explain a little bit about uh, what the Supreme Court did with a, with a pretty big substantial decision that came out recently regarding, uh, I think the case was called the Department of Homeland Security versus Regis, uh, the, the University of California. And it has to do with the uh, DACA decision. But you know what, maybe we should do is just, I, I think part of the problem sometimes is we just launch into these topics thinking that everybody understands <laughs> fully what we're talking about. And maybe it's best to go back, rewind the clock a little bit and just talk about what does DACA mean, and and how do we even get to here? What what does DACA mean, and and what I think we should probably go back to what two thousand and twelve when President Obama started. The, well, you can go back further than that, I suppose. But I think the case hinges on what President Obama did in twenty twelve, if, if I'm making some sense. Right, you're absolutely right. So DACA is short for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, um, and basically. What DACA is, is in 2012, President Obama um, issued a memo that allowed young people who had been brought here by their parents but were undocumented uh, living in the United States, if they were within a certain age, they could come forward um, and uh, kind of present themselves to the Department of Homeland Security. They could pay a fee. They could submit to a background check and information, and in exchange, they could get a reprieve from deportation and the ability to work legally and go to school legally here in the United States. So the, um, the, the problem was okay. that you had children who were brought here, usually at a very young age, who in essence were raised here, went to school here, and then they were just sort of <laughs> what they they had no they had no status. So that was the problem. And this this pool of people was were was at the time was growing and growing. Absolutely. Um so the the DACA program um actually the original real effort was the Dream Act uh which its first version was started actually in 2000 by your senior citizen uh senior senator uh, Dick Durbin. Uh, he partnered with Lindsey Graham um, and attempted to pass a bill that would actually give these young people a path to citizenship. Um, uh, you know, since then, the DREAM Act has been introduced uh, in, in every Congress uh, since then and has failed to pass. And so when uh, uh, 
the DACA program as it exists, what benefits are individuals that the, the children that we just described that were brought here at an early age and who were raised here, what benefits do they enjoy as a result of this program? What legal benefits are they entitled to as opposed if they didn't have this at all? Sure. So I think it's really important to first understand that the DACA program gives no path to citizenship. It is not uh, something that creates permanency for these individuals, and it can be taken away at any time. Uh, what it gives is basically a reprieve from the government um, moving to deport an individual. And then I think most importantly for the day-to-day for DACA recipients, it gives legal work authorization and the ability to go to school and participate in the, in the armed services legally. Um, so you are recognized as a contributor um, and you're able to participate uh, in all of those things on the day-to-day. So when 2012, I think it was, when President Obama created this program, it was controversial at the time because I think there were many people that were looking at that and thought he may not have the legal authority to to enact such a program, correct? Yeah. So um, there was a lot of, I would say, controversy and also, you know, I think uh, joy but concern Uh, when the president moved forward with this executive action to allow the DACA program to move forward. Um, You know, I I always say that the bishops, they support the result of DACA in terms of allowing Mm -hmm. young people to move forward to contribute, but they weren't exactly thrilled with how it was created because they've long advocated for a legislative solution for such an immigration change. Yeah, this is this is the this is so uh, symbolic of the problems we have today, which is Congress can't seem to act. And so another entity branch of government acts and that creates reverberations in other uh, branches of government. And that's why we have some of the challenges we do today. And it's just failure of 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 Congress sometimes not to be able to 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 address issues and so we wind up in these crazy situations. So that was 2012 um the president president Obama does enact this program and as you indicated the 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 USCCB did uh make some positive comments about the result because therefore we have the uh, what how many thousand tens of thousands of people were there that now once President Obama did this, were able to stay in the country, live and work without fear of deportation. It was, do you recall the number? It was substantial. So at the height of the program, it was decimated about 800,000 yeah. individuals were enrolled in the program. Now we're at about 690, perhaps 700. Um, and the decrease is for a number of reasons. Uh, one, some people chose not to renew uh, when President Trump attempted, attempted to end the program in September of 2017. Um, and you also have people who perhaps through marriage or work were able to hmm. actually move forward with legal uh, immigration status. So President Trump gets elected and there was a lot of attention on DACA. Um, sometimes he was using it as a positive thing to try to get something else and other times. But at the end of the day, I think it was Attorney General Sessions made the move to to eliminate the program. Correct. That's when this started. Yes. Right. In September of 2017, Attorney General Sessions uh, issued a memo calling the program illegal and moving forward with ending the program. 
um, and giving a six-month wind-down period. And and the justification was because it was how it was created, correct? I think that's what they were saying. It wasn't done properly, so they were eliminating. That I think that's what they were saying, but there was probably other reasons to it. But that's what that was their line, if I recall. Yeah, the, there was a large questioning of the legality of the program um, and exactly kind of, uh, you know, how it was created and, and, you know, the size of the program also. Um, those those were the main points of his memo. And so then um, then lawsuit was filed. And that's the case. There, there were probably other lawsuits as well. But the one that made it to the U.S. Supreme Court was the one I referenced, Department of Human, Homeland Security versus basically the University of California. And that took some time to get to the court. It did. So there were several lawsuits yeah. throughout the country, um, and they were combined into that California case that you mentioned. There was a lawsuit in New York and Washington, D.C. as well. Um, and the lawsuits were initiated, I believe, in January of 2018 or perhaps uh, later on, maybe February. And the Supreme Court heard the oral argument for the the opinion, uh, I mean, for the case on uh, November 12th of 2019. And so in November, we have the case uh, that was heard at the U.S. Supreme uh, Supreme Court 2019. And now it usually takes about six months after they hear it for them to release a decision. And that decision came out recently. So let's now talk about the case itself. Um, and it, 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 it the decision came down. It was a close uh, vote, as all of these seem to be. It was a 5-4 decision. Uh, and I believe it was Judge Roberts that was the gave the, the majority, which said it, it, it's kind of an interesting decision because it, 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 it's a win. I, I think it's good for the program, but it's not like a total win, correct? I mean, there's some uh, things that can still happen that could create some problems for those in the program, if I'm not mistaken. That's absolutely right. So the opinion um, was focused on the legality of the president and his administration ending the program in September of 2017. And that was the question, whether the way that they attempted to end the program was legal. Um, the opinion does actually makes a note of saying that, uh, you know, Justice Roberts says in his opinion, we are not discussing the legality of the DACA program nor are we discussing the soundness of the policy behind DACA. What we are discussing here today and what we are striking down is the way that President Trump attempted to end the program in September of 2017. And go into that a little bit. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt you. Go ahead. No. And so uh, basically, in the opinion, um, Chief Justice Roberts says, that the administration didn't really follow uh, what's known as the Administrative Procedures Act, which is uh, normally a a rule and process for when you end major administrative policies. You have to give people a chance to notice and comment. Um, You have to kind of go through certain stages. And Chief Justice Roberts said, well, they didn't really follow this policy. What is, I think, most notable and what you mentioned very correctly about this is he does not say that the program couldn't necessarily be ended by this administration or any administration in the future. He just says that the way that they attempted to end the program in September of 2017 is not valid. And so did I see some information recently from the Trump administration indicating that they were going to try to address that concern of the court? Or did I just because I I do think there is some concern about that. Yes. 
So um, there's been many reportings in the media, uh, some by President Trump himself, mm-hmm. some by his chief of staff. Um, he, The president, the day after the decision, said that he planned to uh, end the program. And then about two weeks ago, he stated that he uh, was planning to provide, as he called it, a road to citizenship. So that's, that's right. almost the complete opposite. That's right. I forgot um, about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, I think the key takeaway here is that it, it, it's far from over. Um, and, you know, the, while the DACA program remains right now legal and good law, um, we're uncertain whether the Trump administration will attempt to end the program. And so we really should be looking to Congress to get a permanent solution. Yeah. At any level, Chicago, Congress should they they have an obligation to deal with this. This is a this is a problem that there are people out there that are kind of still in limbo and it's a shame that we can't i mean it's it's amazes me that the way this program was created is controversial the way it was ended is controversial the way that it will continue to sort of exist in limbo is still you know controversial because there's not a law there's there's these policies and then we're just quibbling between the executive branch and the judicial branch as to you know how the it's all about procedure it's not about the issue per se it 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 really is frustrating I completely agree. I, I think the one thing, and yet again, I think this is a place where the bishops are, are right on point. Um, I think the one thing we can agree about is that these young people are certainly contributing to our right. our communities and to our church. Um, I think it's really notable, and I, I tell people this all the time, um, but there are 27,000 healthcare professionals who are DACA recipients yeah. who are currently working and dealing with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, their contributions, that's just one element. But what they bring to our country, to our community, and to our church is undeniable. Ashley, when um, the case went to the Supreme Court back in, um, whenever that case started, I think it was 2017, were, are, more, are people still applying for DACA? Can they still apply for it? Or is that been sort of frozen? Because I think you had indicated they were 800,000 originally, and now they're 690,000. So are people still applying for it as they're made eligible for it because of their age and that kind of thing? Or, or has that been stopped? So I think that's a great question, um, one that we get asked a lot. Uh, when the lawsuit occurred, uh, DACA was no longer, a, the program no longer took new applicants. So young people who perhaps would have aged into the category of, of eligibility um, uh, under the program were not allowed to apply. With the Supreme Court decision, Justice Roberts reinstates the program in whole and says that um, now young people who perhaps before could not apply are allowed to apply. However, um, as of uh, Friday, we had not uh, basically when a decision like that comes out, you normally need implementation, basically an instruction manual from the federal government. And we had not received any sort of uh, memo saying how the government is going to be accepting new applications. 
And so, yet again, another piece of this has already been to a federal court. (laughs) A court in Maryland said on Friday that new applications must begin if uh, the administration is not going to attempt to end the program at this time. And so advocates are waiting now to get instructions as to how people are to apply and learn more about that. What's your sense of the mood of uh, the DACA I don't want to say recipients because that's not a really good word, but those in the DACA program, it, 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 are they relieved of this decision? Because if it went the other way, that would have been potentially, well, I don't know what, that would have been even worse. So I, I think there's signs of hope for them. Are, are they optimistic that this will be resolved or are they resigned to the fact that this could just kind of be their life for the, for the future? So I think I I heard your introduction about the kind of surprising Supreme Court session, and I completely Mm -hmm. agree. Uh, We had been preparing for a decision uh, that would have immediately ended the program. So I think there was a moment of of pleasant surprise. Um, But to to your point, uh, the program could be ended at any time in terms of the president attempting to end the program and following the, po- the proper procedure. Uh, you know, I, I'm, it creates a feeling of uncertainty. Sure. But I, I say this, and I hear this from so many DACA recipients and their family, the true path to resolving this is not through the courts, but through Congress. Right. Um, and matter of fact, at this point in time, the House of Representatives has already passed a bill uh, that does address the issue, H.R. 6. And now it really we turn to the Senate um, to see if the Senate is going to move forward with the solution during this session. Um, I, I'm not certain about that. I'm not certain how much time that we'll have, given it's an election year and given how many other important things are on the agenda for the Senate. But it really is a special moment where we go back to saying Congress needs to work together in a bipartisan way and find a solution because people's lives are really depending on it. Yes, uh, heard, heard that before, and you're absolutely right, but we'll keep saying it until hopefully we'll get resolution of this issue. Our thanks to Bob and his guests for that timely conversation. On The Voice of Charity this past week, hosts Marie Jokum and Bridget Murphy discussed Catholic Charities health fairs that offer free health services to vulnerable populations. Here's a highlight of that conversation. At Catholic Charities, we're trying very hard to continue one of our summer traditions by hosting community health fairs. Obviously, the pandemic makes this a challenge to do safely, but these fairs are important because we have medical professionals who provide health screenings for underserved populations who may be uninsured or otherwise unable to access care. We have two health fairs planned for this summer and two guests today to share more. Gloria Barrera is president-elect of the National Association of Hispanic Nurses. And Catholic Charities has been really blessed to be partners um, with the association for a number of years, working together to bring better health care options to the Hispanic community. Um, We actually also were able to present the association with an award at last year's annual meeting of our board of directors because of the work of the nurses, particularly in the health fair, but just their ability to say yes whenever they're needed. So we're so glad you're here today, Gloria. And the other guest we have with us is Enrique Alonso, and Enrique is a Catholic Charities Director of Program Initiatives, and he's coordinating the health fairs on behalf of the agency. So welcome, Gloria and Enrique. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Gloria, first off, as a healthcare professional, we really want to thank you and your colleagues for all of the heroic work you've been doing during the pandemic. Um, it's really extraordinary. And also, congratulations on your recent appointment as president-elect of the National Association of Hispanic Nurses. Can you tell us a little bit about, I'm going to say the acronym, NAHN, N-A-H-N, and how you got involved with it? Sure. Uh, so NAHN is committed to advancing the, the health in Hispanic communities um, and to lead, promote, and advocate the educational, professional, and leadership opportunities for Hispanic nurses. I became involved uh, with NAHN about seven years ago and have held a leadership position for five years now. And I think what I value most about NAHN is having a network that fosters mentorship and professional growth. And of course, I, I also appreciate the um, just the opportunities that we have, including this relationship that we've had longstanding with Catholic Charities. I think that's amazing. And just having met some of your nurses through through the years and, and knowing that you all do a wide variety of different kinds of nursing, right? I, I always think, you know, when people say nurse, similarly to when they say social worker, they kind of have one one vision of that, right? It's like, oh, you're a nurse in a doctor's office. But you have nurses who do a ton, a ton of different things. Um, and I think that's what's so helpful when we're at the health fairs is that you have experts in lots of different fields, whether that's pediatrics, whether that's adult health. Um, what are some of the healthcare concerns that you do see most often from those patients at the health fairs? Yeah, I just wanted to echo that um, we're, we're definitely more outside of the clinical um, right now more than ever. Um, I think lifestyle modifications are often difficult uh, to grasp at first for many patients, um, but they can be used uh, effectively to treat a range of diseases, including obesity. So education is key for all patients to feel empowered and in control of their own health. Uh, so there may not be a lot of time to address all health promotion activities, but if we have that opportunity to address one or two, we can say that, that it's a success. So discussing something as easy as limiting salt intake uh, that may prevent heart disease um, and change the health trajectory of a family, uh, those, those kind of organic conversations happen during these fairs. And we're also sharing valuable information on the All of Us research program with those that are in attendance at the health fairs. So the All of Us Research Program seeks to enroll 1 million or more participants who will share their health information and begin a new era in medical research and treatment. So through NON, we are promoting the program in Latino communities across the country. So it's not one single health study. It's a database that researchers can use to run thousands of health studies to achieve a wide range of medical breakthroughs that can lead to improved health for future generations of Latinos. Wow. Um and I think, you know, with the pandemic, we've heard more and more about lifestyle health and those underlying conditions that are often caused or it's certainly aggravated by lifestyle health. So we we know how important it is to address things like heart disease and um, diabetes and um, asthma certainly isn't, isn't really a lifestyle issue, but... And, and what's really important in a lot of these things is cultural competence. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that, um, that, that that is an important aspect because when you have a provider that looks like you and that understands 
um, some of the cultural implications. For example, if we say, you know, limit your carb intake, limit your, your you know, your bread intake, um, that, that conversation looks different for a Latino. Then I, I can say, um, you know what, how many tortillas do you have uh, with your meal? And then we can work with that. And I think that's truly one of the things that that um, that your nurses bring to our health fairs that I think is so important. You know, we're going to take a break um, here in a moment, but I think you know, as we come back to this conversation, it's really important for our listeners to understand. And I know Enrique will share more with us. These are actual um, exams that are happening, right? So the nurses are really are having, although it's quick, they're having an opportunity to have some of these conversations that I think are, are so, so valuable for the community. Why is it important for you as president-elect of NON to have your nurses out in the community? Well, I think that's part of our mission um, to to foster that that health promotion in the communities, um, so that so that we could just have a, a greater, I think, impact on um, on our patients. So it's it's not just in the clinical setting; it's also meeting our patients where they are, and they're at these health fairs. Great. Um, speaking of which, Enrique, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the health fairs, how long we've been doing them? I know you recently inherited them. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, where those, how those started. Sure. Um, Catholic Charities has partnered with the medical community since 2002. Uh, in 2001, uh, under the leadership of Dr. John Turbick and Dr. Paul O'Keefe, uh, Catholic Charities did a survey of 200 clients. Um, basically, what they found out was that a client showed no primary health provider, uh, no physician, uh, limited or no insurance, and our clients also were utilizing the emergency room as uh, health care. Um, the goals then were established, and they're still re- relevant now. Um, some of those goals are to reduce the number of people who use the emergency room for the health care provider, uh, increase participants' utilization of community primary care providers, uh, increase people's knowledge of how lifestyles can influence overall health, uh, basic outreach to individuals, families, and children to provide primary health care uh, for those underinsured or uninsured, uh, provide access to immediate medical care, uh, linking them to community federal, federally qualified health clinics, and to provide uh, prevention education. Um, since then, each summer, Catholic Charities works with healthcare partners across the region to host free community-based health fairs, offering basic medical and dental evaluations to those who do not have medical insurance or are underinsured. As you mentioned, um, for many people, this may be their only opportunity to receive highly professional medical care free of charge. Uh, in the past few years, we've averaged about 600 people that have come to our health fairs. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're really incredible. And I, I think, too, just, Enrique, for our listeners, um, I know Bridget and I and you have seen them and obviously Gloria as well, but health Fair is kind yeah. of not the correct word for I them, agree. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know it's the word we use for a lot of reasons, but could you walk us through what it looks like? Because when I hear health fair, I think there's a couple of tables and you've given me some kind of pop, like 
lollipop and some pieces of paper. And that's not what happens at them. Can you sort of describe what they look like and what's going on? Sure. Um, so in addition to like basic medical and dental exams, um, people receive screenings for glucose, skin cancer, um, as well as confidential hepatitis C and HIV rapid testing information. So there's a variety of different screenings that uh, we determine based on the community that we serve. Uh, children also receive back-to-school physicals, immunizations, and sports physicals. Uh, depending on supplies, they also get a free backpack full of school supplies. Um, but it's a variety of several different services. They uh, enter the building. This year, we, there'll be short screening for COVID. Um, but in addition to that, we will also provide a variety of different screenings, uh, physical exams. And then at the end, we often provide the patient or visitor with a follow-up on where to provide or where to receive uh, qualified medical care. Yeah, to echo what um, Marie said when I went last year, which was my first time, you know, it really does sort of look like a, a field hospital with, with exam screens set up. And we have a lot of medical professionals, um, including obviously our friends with non um, who oversees the the medical aspect of this, given that we're not doctors? <laughs> we just <laughs> yeah. play them on TV. Yeah. <laughs> that would be Dr. Greg Ozark. He is uh, from Loyola Medical, uh, University Medical Center in Maywood. And and he brings with him a whole slew of, of attendings and residents and some medical students as well who kind of help bolster, um, as, as you mentioned, the professional aspect, right? It's, these are some really incredible docs that come in um, along with our amazing nurses. So there's really, really high-quality professionals helping out our, our clients. It's amazing. Correct. And I think you do see a lot of conversation. So back to kind of what Gloria said, you know, sometimes when you're in an office, they're in and out and, you know, checking in with you and they're on a schedule. And I, I really feel what I witnessed at least is the doctors and the nurses have kind of a, um, a, a different attitude coming into the fair and they very much are listening to patients. Sometimes the whole family is there. Obviously, this year we'll do that a little differently. Yeah. Um, but uh, it really is a quality moment of understanding people's lifestyles, the issues that might affect their health care, and really the whole family. So it's impressive to to witness. Um, Enrique and Gloria, this is a little off script, but since you mentioned federally qualified health clinics, and I think we want to give people some options who may be thinking about their health if they don't have a doctor and they can't get to a health fair, um, are federally qualified health clinics options for people, and how do they find them? Um, I think that the, the first step would be, um, if they do not have insurance, it would be through uh, a federally qualified health center um, to find one. And information can be found online um, at fqhc.org just to see if there's one um, in the area. And if you're, you know, around Chicago, there, there are many. You can find out more about all the services provided by Catholic Charities and how you can help by going to catholiccharities.net. That's catholiccharities.net. 
Stick around after a short break. We will hear a conversation about the liturgy during the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll be back in a moment. Catholic Charities Senior Unity Mass is a wonderful tradition that gathers more than 300 seniors from Chicago and its suburbs each year for a celebration of faith and friendship. Since public health guidelines do not allow us to meet in person this summer, the 2020 Senior Unity Mass will be held online on Thursday, August 6th at 11 a.m. Anyone age 55 plus is cordially invited. Find your nearest computer and log in to youtube.com, then type Catholic Chicago. We and our special guests are excited to stay connected to all of the seniors we care so very much about with this special event. That's the Catholic Charities Senior Unity Mass on August 6th at 11 a.m. on youtube.com slash catholicchicago. We hope to see you there. You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio, 9.50 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. Every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. This week on our Focus on the Liturgy program, co-hosts Timothy Johnston and Todd Williamson discussed the health protocols and some of the spiritual connections that we might be able to make as our churches reopen for worship during the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen in. We, we are now in what? I want to say the 18th or 19th week of um, the corona epidemic. Um, for that many weeks, uh, we have been working remotely from home, many of us. Uh, I think uh, different agencies are just now starting to allow people to come to work. But even uh, Sunday is still under the protocol, the health mm-hmm. protocol uh, for COVID-19. And we've made mention of it on, uh, on our show. But you, you and I talked last week in prep for this and thought that one of the things that we'd like to do, particularly for the listeners, um, who many of whom have been um, have been uh, registering for Sunday Mass, or mm-hmm. who who have been to various uh, celebrations uh, at their parish as their parish has started to reopen, um, but but uh, under the protocols that we have and some of the limitations, um, you and I had an interesting conversation about maybe breaking open some of these aspects of the the reopening that many dioceses are dealing with, um, but to but to break some of those elements open and maybe try to make some some theological, some spiritual uh, connections. Yeah, and hopefully, uh, and I think in some ways even maybe somewhat connected to our conversation uh, last month is is how to read the sign and the symbol in, in a theological way, like that you can meditate upon whether you're participating fully in Mass uh, by attending or if you're still participating um, through live stream um, or some other way, you, you have an opportunity to really break these open and reflect on them and what they mean for you in this time. Yeah, just like we would with liturgical text. Exactly. Just so a uh, reminder to those who were here with us last month, and just an FYI, if you weren't, uh, last month we had uh, Sister Joyce Ann Zimmerman, an author of a new book 
um, Deep is the Mystery, right? How Deep the Mystery, yeah. And it was all about um, uh, praying with and breaking open and uh, really looking at the liturgical texts of the Mass. So the 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 texts that are in the Roman Missal that uh, both the the presider and the uh, the whole liturgical assembly use. And 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 that point, uh, the, the focus of that, uh, Timothy, like you just said, was to 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 really take a uh, to look at those texts through a particular lens and what we wanted to do today was to look through look at some of these um reopening protocols through a spiritual lens through a a a theological lens if you will to to help the listeners make some connections that they make might not otherwise Mm -hmm. make huh that's right yeah there's great things to break open um even though we're in this unique time still and and it's still new for a lot of people as, as we are going back, as you said, you know, a lot of people are having to register um, for a particular mass time and not everybody is able to go because of uh, the restrictions. Um, and so hopefully um, as we are navigating these waters together, uh, we are patient with one another, patient with uh, not only our neighbor in, in the pew near us, um, but certainly the priests and, and all of the ministers uh, who are, are working very diligent to make sure we have a safe space to pray in um, so that we can be together. The, the, the setting the stage, if you will, um, might help just a little bit here. Uh, we do have some listeners outside of the Archdiocese of Chicago, but largely the dioceses in this region all work together uh, right. in, in regard to the health protocols. And, and maybe, Timothy, just to start kind of preeminently to mention all of these are out of an abundance of caution. All of these are in place, um, really, uh, out of the cardinal virtue of, of prudence and, and care for one another and safety. Yeah, I mean, that is that is definitely what I think, even across the country, not even in our region, just in our region. But, you know, we come to this um, as people of faith, and we come to it... Uh, trusting that those who are working to prepare um, these spaces for us are doing that in order that we are cared for. And we do that, yeah, like you said, with prudence, um, certainly with compassion and and faith that we have, because uh, we, we certainly want to do the best that we can to be present to one another and present uh, in the Eucharistic liturgy. I know that uh, the bishops in, in our province, uh, the dioceses of Illinois, um, are are committed to that and actually see these um, health protocols as a, um, a a respect life issue. I mean, this this is this is taking care of the um, the most vulnerable. Uh, this is taking care of all of our brothers and sisters in the face of this of of, of this worldwide pandemic. And it's it, it it's about. It's about taking, you know, Christian charity and 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 loving our brothers and sisters. Yeah, and I, I, I you made me think of something, and I don't know if it fits here exactly, um, but I was talking to a, a friend of mine recently who is a doctor, and he he helped me kind of have an insight because you know between my own family and other folks that I have ministered with over the years, you know, I've heard various feelings about masses being suspended or now that we're going back and whatnot. And, and he said to me, and I think this was just helpful for me to think about in terms of even the Mass, as, our, as we are charitable 
um, when we are with one another in this circumstance. And he said, Timothy, one of the things is this is a new virus. It's, it's brand new. And as scientists, we're constantly discovering new things. And so any way that we can be charitable, and that's why, you know, if, if protocols change in the coming weeks or in the coming months, know that it's always going to be done in light of the most recent scholarship research based on what we're learning about this new virus and always with you in mind um, as we want to be charitable and ensure the safety of God's people um, yeah. inside and outside the church. And so I think it's important for us to remember that it, it is a new virus. It's a new experience for all of us, even though we've been with it for a few months now or several months. Um, but, but things still may progress and change, and, and there has to be some flexibility as, as we are learning in this together. So I, I love that prudence, charity, keeping those, those in mind as, as we gather. Together. Right. Right. And I, and I think that most parishes uh, in, um, in, in, the, in the listening distance of, of this show, mm-hmm. uh, I think most parishes find themselves in similar situations. So yes. uh, last month in June, uh, most of our dioceses opened up uh, the churches again. They had been closed for a good number of weeks at the very beginning of this pandemic. Uh, the various dioceses uh, issued particular guidelines um, in the beginning, uh, in in uh, June, early June. There were um, celebrations allowed with no more than 10 people, and they were uh, select celebrations. They were the ones that, if you will, have been on hold for the longest with the shutdown. So like infant baptisms, right? People uh-huh. who were waiting to have their babies baptized or confession uh, or weddings, people who had their weddings. So there were a select number of celebrations allowed, but they were all under, uh, they were all for uh, less than 10, pe- 10 people or less. There were, and continue to be specific um uh, physical protocols, keeping social distance, hand sanitization, the, the use of masks. Then around mid-June, again for most parishes in our listening area, they were able to increase the number of people who could participate and they increased the uh, number of celebrations that a parish could, uh, could uh, have. Uh, Sunday Mass, for example, uh, with a, uh, a number, a uh, percentage, a certain percentage of uh-huh. the seating capacity of the church building. Now, that will vary from parish to parish because the number of seats in each church building is different. And so the, uh, uh, the, the civil guidelines, and uh, speaking here for the Archdiocese of Chicago, uh, the uh, percentage was determined to be between 15 and 20% of the seating capacity. That's the number of people that could come in for Sunday Mass. Uh, confirmations, which had been canceled uh, in the early weeks of the uh, pandemic, were uh, allowed to be rescheduled under these guidelines. First Communions were allowed to be scheduled under these guidelines. Uh, the celebration of the Sacraments of Initiation for those who were looking forward to the Easter Vigil. Uh, are, are now able to be celebrated, uh, again, uh, under particular uh, protocols. Um, and, and Timothy, I think it's important for the listeners that not all parishes had to do this, um, but were able to do it in as much as they have the resources to do so. Right, right. So um, there, there is a, a, a huge uh, need for trained ushers and uh, greeters, 
uh, who can help uh, manage the, the, the people that are coming in, who can guide them to their seats, who can offer them hand sanitization, um, who can uh, uh, help them during the uh, procession to communion, for example. So a parish needs to have a good, solid number of volunteers. Um, and some parishes just aren't able to provide that. And so right. they, they might, may not be in the same place as a, a neighboring parish, for example. So, I mean, even through all this conversation, I think those kinds of, and, and that's so fluid, isn't it, Timothy? So, right. like you were talking earlier, that it's, 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 it's like there, there can be changes on a continual basis. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, why we need so much patience with one another, because everyone is really working, um, even the volunteers, those that are, are stepping forward and putting themselves um, in a position because they know how important it is. So those ushers, those readers who are being trained. Um, and, and I think one of the things I've really appreciated even here in the Archdiocese, because my family lives in, in, in different places around the country, so I'm hearing lots of different stories. Um, and I just I appreciate so much the diligence um, and the clarity with which the guidelines came forward from the Archdiocese here to help. And I think you're, you're throughout the whole state of Illinois, as the bishops, as you said, work together. Um, I think there was much intention um, in, in doing that. So, And I know that they'll have individuals uh, be attentive to those things as we learn uh, more things. Yeah. As national guidelines change, um, as regional guidelines change, whatever it might be, um, you know, to help us. And so uh, it, it's been definitely a blessing uh, to, to see all that. And the hard work of, of all the ministers still. I mean, it, it's been really inspiring to hear, again, just more anecdotal stories, but, you know, of the pastor down the street here um, who's still connecting with people. I mean, he's still reaching out, and we're doing so all throughout the, uh, uh, the shelter-in-place. And now that masses have started up, he's still trying to reach out to those who maybe aren't registering to come. Right. And making sure that the poor, you know, the, the food pantry and stuff like that, that people in our neighborhood still have what they need in appropriate ways and connecting with local um, resources and officials to ensure that, that that can happen. And so it's just really inspiring to see parish, parish communities still doing the work that, that needs to be done just in a different way. The, the mission still continues. Our thanks to Tim and Todd for that timely information. In our final segment today, Catholic Chicago co-hosts Father Greg Sakowitz and Mark Teresi talk with Brother Michael Segovich. Brother Michael is wrapping up his time with the Archdiocese of Chicago's Office for Religious and is about to begin a six-year term on his province's leadership team in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Here is a highlight of that conversation. Brother Michael Segovich, welcome to the program. How are you, Michael? I'm doing very well, thank you, and thank you for having me as a guest this morning. And the thing is, now, were you born in Chicago? Oh, yes. Uh, my family is from Bridgeport, and oh. uh, yeah, I'm born and bred there, uh, uh, baptized at St. Jerome Croatian Parish, and um, still have um, most of my family here in the Chicago area. Where'd you go to high school, Michael? I went to St. Lawrence in Burbank, Illinois. And class of? 1968. Your class is 68, okay, because uh, yeah, I was yeah. Notre Dame Niles, 71. Right. So it, uh, yeah. Now, you were on the program, Michael, about how long ago? Uh, well, back in uh, the, the fall to promote the retirement fund for retired religious, 
And then last year I was on with two other brothers, and we spoke about uh, vocations to the brother's life, uh, two of my fellow brothers who live outside Chicago. Mm-hmm. Brother Michael, uh, this is Mark. Um, yeah, Mark. Could you um, tell our listeners um, your order and also the yeah. charism of your order? Because I think yeah. many Catholics, including me, until I worked with the National Fund for Catholic Religious Vocations, yeah. and Brother Paul and Brother Ronnie, I didn't really know the charism of brothers. Yeah, um, our, our particular order was founded by uh, a layman named uh, Ed, uh, Edmund Rice, Edmund Ignatius Rice, from in Ireland. Oh. And uh, he was a widower who saw a major need to educate youngsters in his native country who were being denied the uh, ability to learn the faith through the laws of the time under the uh, British Empire. And uh, he took it upon himself to uh, conduct uh, classes uh, underground, somewhat illegally, to the uh, young, uh, young men of Ireland and eventually transferred over into uh, teaching um, boys on the secondary high school level, which has been most of my career. Mm-hmm. I later went back to become principal of St. Lawrence and also oh. Brother Ice here in Chicago. Now, Michael, what years and, were you uh, principal at St. Lawrence? I was principal there from uh, 2000 to 2005. And what about Brother Rice? And Brother Rice, 1989 to 1995. Okay, so which means when you went to St. Lawrence High School, maybe just for a moment, uh, how did your religious vocation develop? Was it in high school or more college or later? Well, I would say that uh, I have an older brother who was in the first class of St. Lawrence, class of 1965. So he was a senior when I was a freshman there. Uh, we were all public school educated and very well, I might add, in the Oaklawn School District. And uh, my last year of grammar school, just before I started high school, I contracted rheumatic fever. Mm, wow, and wow. Uh, one of the brothers came over, Brother Noel T. Murphy, born on Christmas Day in Ireland, came over, as many brothers did in those days, to work in the foreign mission in the United States and mm. Canada. And Brother Murphy was uh, willing to get up his own free time after school a couple of days a week to help tutor me in Latin before I could actually attend uh, school in person for the first two months of my high school. That's career. amazing. So, yeah. now, the, uh, name, the name of your order is? Uh, technically, we're the Congregation of Christian Brothers, and because we're often confused with the very fine Delosal Christian Brothers, we uh, kind of identify ourselves saying the Edmund Rice Christian Brothers. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we're a brothers-only order. I didn't say only brothers, but brothers-only. Uh, <laughs> only we're brothers. We're fact uh, that uh, we're vowed religious. We live in a usually in a, a community setting, like I'm in here with three other brothers in Hyde Park. And we really feel that uh, uh, our uh, charisma, in our case, has been education, but also a lot of other ministerial works, especially as our men have gotten older and found the demands of teaching young men and women now on the high school level to be, become, uh, you know, a little bit tiring and taxing that uh, we're doing a lot of other fine work in other, in other ministries. And now, Michael, your, your high schools in Chicago would be St. Lawrence and Brother Rice. And Brother Rice. And for a long time, the brothers were president at Leo High School. And uh, it's, it, that was the one we first came to in 1926. Mm. Yeah. And then you and, and well, you had to leave then brother uh, Leo uh, High School. The, the brothers did leave uh, Leo High School. It was never owned by us. It was always a, and it still is by the Archdiocese of Chicago. But you know, there's still a very 
very strong Leo Alumni Association there, and many of them uh, remember many of the brothers very fondly for their efforts there at Leo at uh, 79th and Saginaw. Now, Michael, the world has certainly been turned upside down since you were last on this program last yeah. fall with COVID-19 hitting us in mid-March and going through today yeah. and will continue. So how has the COVID-19 affected your religious community where you live, where you work? Well, uh, as I say, we live in Hyde Park, and um, uh, when the first hit, it was just in the early part of the Lenten season. So uh, I found that one thing that our brothers did was uh, we do pray together twice a day, and uh, we really seem to concentrate on improving the quality of our our short liturgy, our morning and evening prayer. And especially during Holy Week, uh, each of us took one of the days of the Triduum and uh, really concentrated in putting together a nice liturgical or uh, uh, a, a ceremony in one case, imitating the, uh, the body and bread of Christ and so forth, the Last Supper. And that was very nice, and one of the brothers made a special breakfast for us as well, which we really appreciated. And then, uh, Father Greg, I might add that uh, one of the brothers and myself, every Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock, sat down and watched you uh, consult, consult great mass with uh, Cardinal Supich. Oh, yeah. And we, and we watched as your hair grew longer each week, <laughs> I might add. <laughs> Finally got it cut about a month ago. And yeah. Cardinal wasn't that a relief? Oh, I felt lighter. <laughs> Cardinal Supergy gives marvelous homilies. Doesn't he though? Yes, yes. But it amazes me though, uh, Michael, how many parishes and areas do have a live streaming mass? Because the thing yeah. where people would come to us, we now have to go to the people. And despite, I would say, most parishes in the archdiocese now being reopened, many, many, many people are still afraid to come. They're yeah. afraid to come. Yeah. Now, related yeah. to that, Michael, what, Brother Michael, what about um, what are the plans for your schools for Brother Rice and for St. Lawrence? Uh, uh, yeah, Brother Rice, I know, is, uh, you know, and nobody really has made a final decision, but uh, Brother Rice, uh, I know for sure, is because I was on their board until just to the end of last month, and I had to resign because of a conflict of interest with my new position uh, with the uh, province. But uh, they are going to use a hybrid system where uh, on, on one uh, Monday and Wednesday, half the kids are there and the other half are on uh, uh, e-learning. And then on Tuesday, Thursday, the other half are there and those the half that are there on Monday and Wednesday, they're on e-learning. And then everybody's on e-learning on Friday. I think that's the current plan. And I presume St. Lawrence is going to be pretty much similar to that. And if any school district, public or private, which announces its uh, plan seems to be going to that, what they call that hybrid plan of uh, instruction. Now, I was on, actually on Brother Rice's board um, oh. when I was at Mercy Home. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember uh, the brother's name, Irish Christian. Brother Jim Keane. Jim Keane. Yeah. yeah, what a great yeah. guy. And he, He's in South Sudan. Is he really? Yes, yeah. a number of years now, yeah. He had asked me to come on board, and what I learned on that board was that Brother Rice alum are fiercely loyal. Yes. Uh, yes. How are you keeping in touch with them during this time? Well, uh, I know uh, they, there's always a, a lot of uh, email, electronic learning um, uh, messages going out, 
Uh, Brother Rice is still having their alumni golf bombing for a Oh, they time, are. Yeah. What is that I, happening, Michael? I think it's this week. Uh, I'm not sure for exactly. I, uh, but, uh, yeah, they, they've been they've been advertising that, that they're still going to go ahead with it. Of course, you know, golf courses are open. Mm-hmm. And it is possible to, possible to stay socially distant while, you know, conducting a tournament such as that. Um, so alums the, should should check that out on your website then on Brother uh, Rice's on website. Brother Rice website, yeah, right. yeah. It's yeah. yeah. I just I just find though, Michael, during this whole time, that I made the comment to some people. Even though it's summer, it doesn't feel like summer. And what does that mean? You think of ball games, you think of picnics, you think of family gatherings, big social yeah, well, gatherings, and well, all that's been turned well, upside down. Father Greg, I know you're a big White Sox fan, and you know I am too. Oh yeah. And then in the black. Wait, let me there. turn my microphone <laughs> off. <laughs> now, yeah, I wish Michael May would turn off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like the mercy rule in the first inning the other day. That was something that's mm. interesting. They're going to be. They're uh, going to be good. They're going to be uh, very competitive. Are they the best in yeah. baseball? No, but are they going to yeah. be a competitor? No. And uh, yes, and so and of course, yeah. so will the Cubs. So you have and two of good baseball I'm teams. Town when they get good, right? But anyway. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But uh, early on during this, uh, when everything was shutting down, they were showing all the replays of these Blackhawks and White Sox games. And I told the brothers, I said, I've reached Nirvana. Every time I watch a game, they never lose. I said, I've been waiting for this my whole life. So, but, uh, yeah, it, it does seem kind of strange in that, that uh, you know, uh, here we are. Was, opening day is tonight. And what is it, June 23rd? And July 23rd. It was, was about a, I'm sorry, July 23rd. Greg, about a year ago at this time, we were at uh, Sox Park, not in the different with different parties, and you were being honored by the White Sox. Oh my God, right I forgot about time. that. Yeah. About a year ago, yeah. You you have a new job, a new responsibility. You're going to be on the provincial board leadership team uh, for your order. What does that entail? What what are the challenges coming up for your order? Well, it's uh, primarily internal administration, uh, attending to the needs and requirements of our brothers who uh, in our North American province, which extends from. Dominica to Honolulu wow. to Vancouver to St. John's, Newfoundland. So do, you, uh, do you have to make an on-site trip to Honolulu to check things out? Actually, uh, my two-year cycle for the committee, pardon, pardon me, for the community in Honolulu uh, is uh, will be part of my domain for this year and next year. And I'm just hoping this COVID goes away so that I can actually make a, a trip out there because. You know, it's a sacrifice, but somebody has to do it, you know, and I'm, yes. uh, I'm willing to make that sacrifice. <laughs> Father Greg especially, and I would be happy to carry your luggage. You tell us when. Cut it off the team. You know? <laughs> and let me ask you this, Michael. How many men in your religious community? Uh, in our local community here, there's four. Uh, in the in the country, and uh, in, in Canada, too, North America, uh, we have about, about 200 uh, present there. Of course... Like many other communities, we're, we're older. Uh, I'm one of the young types. I will not be 70 for another two months. But, uh, <laughs> you youngster. But, uh, you know, I'm a whippersnapper, yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, and then worldwide, we have uh, about 1,800 men worldwide. Our best wishes go out to Brother Michael as he embarks on the next chapter of his vocational journey. Here's a reminder that you can attend Mass Online by visiting our website, archchicago.org. That's archchicago.org. The Masses are also available on Facebook and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash catholicchicago. 
Our thanks to ABC7 for televising our English Sunday Mass at 9.30 in the morning, to Univision for televising our Spanish language Mass at 10 a.m., and Polevision for televising our Polish language Mass Sunday at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Thank you for listening to us every Saturday morning on Relevant Radio 9.50 and 9.30 a.m. I'm Michael May for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great weekend. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.